Let's talk about mice. Let's do this. <laughs> Welcome to Freely Filtered, the increasingly regular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NefJC journal clubs. NefJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, you should talk with your doctor before making any medical decisions. This podcast will discuss off-label indications for medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, but most people know me as Kidney Boy. Tonight I'm joined by the full filtrate and a special guest, Michael Hung of the University of Michigan. Michael, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks for having me, guys. Um, my name is Mike Hung, and um, I'm a, a critical care nephrologist at the University of Michigan. Excellent. And then Swap. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmath. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H Swapnil. Uh, Jenny. I'm Jenny Lin. I'm a nephrologist and physician scientist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. Samira. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I tweet at SS Farouk. Matt. Hi everyone, I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University with an affinity for the renin-angiotensin system. And I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. Mike, you didn't say your Twitter handle. You got a good one. What is that? Oh, um, I tweet at, at keeping it renal. Keeping it renal. Excellent. I'd rather call that keeping it kidney, but we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mention it because I knew I would offend Matt. <laughs> bing, 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 bing. Tonight, we'll be talking about the COVID-19 pandemic again. It's been two weeks since we recorded our last podcast, and it feels like two years. In the last podcast, I said I felt like I was on a roller coaster about to descend, and I could see the first few cars beginning to plummet and knew that the plummet was inevitable, but I was still safely on the level ground. Well, that's all changed. Since that time, Detroit has entered a trial by fire. Two weeks ago, as COVID patients started to get admitted, my fellow would carefully highlight each one on her list. By the end of the week, to save her highlighter, she was highlighting the non-COVID patients. And the following week, that ritual disappeared entirely as the entire census was COVID-19. We're used to treating to guidelines, and it is a bit disorienting to have no consensus on how to treat these patients. I know that what I was using was a version of Loeb's rules of therapeutics. Loeb's rules are, there's four of them. One, if what you're doing is good, keep doing it. If what you're doing is not good, stop doing it. If you do not know what to do, do nothing and never make the treatment worse than the disease. And these are not a bad guideline to treat you, to use to help treat patients when you don't have any guidelines. The problem, of course, is there are dozens of interventions on each patient. It's impossible to know what intervention is doing what outcome or if it is the therapeutics or the disease itself that is driving the improvement or deterioration of the patient. And so I know that I was describing my experience on Twitter and how patients were responding and what I thought worked and what I thought didn't work. But this is you know, a completely uncontrolled experiment. And I feel nervous about drawing conclusions. You know, One of the things that I noticed were patients that we were keeping very dry, uh, either through the use of diuretics or the through use of uh, ultrafiltration with dialysis. Uh, those patients tended to do better. But uh, I don't think that is a, uh, I'm, you know, I don't know if that really is, um, if I'm drawing the right conclusions from the observations I was making. It was all very 
uh, a bit intimidating. So, but we're going to kind of discuss uh, how COVID's changed in the last couple of weeks in this podcast. I want to start with Samira talking because she's in New York City, kind of another uh, hotspot for the epidemic. What do you? What have you been seeing in the last couple of weeks, Samira? Um, yeah, so since our last podcast, things have dramatically changed um, in in New York, and it still kind of feels like we're have not even started the marathon yet, but we're still kind of, as our governor says, climbing the mountain still and not really sure exactly when we're going to get to the top, maybe in the next two to three weeks. Um, so in preparation for the influx of patients, there's been a lot of planning. Every hospital's leadership has been heavily involved, um, including my own. And in addition to adjusting our hospitals to change our workflow to try to manage these patients, um, really a lot of meetings and how to protect our our fellows, protect our staff while still providing optimal care. Um, so one of the biggest changes that happened in, in my hospital specifically was um, changing our care teams to more geographic regions um, in addition to deploying um, non-traditionally general medicine um, physicians to cover those services. Um, and the idea behind that was to try to keep people in one area, try to minimize um, reuse of uh, PPE, um, and hopefully minimize um, the movement of healthcare workers. Um, so we're currently in the process of really kind of getting that structure in a in a working rhythm so that when we do hit that surge in a couple of weeks, hopefully we'll be able to handle that wave a little bit better. Um, from a fellowship standpoint, we've also made significant changes to both our fellow and faculty schedules, having more faculty around. Um, one big change for us was our weekend coverage. We've gone from having one attending on to now having four, so really kind of having everyday function like the weekday. Um, so that's kind of the logistical side. Um, on the more kind of science research side, um, we do have some potentially um, uh exciting clinical trials that we're doing. And the uh, biggest one that started um, and that's gotten a lot of attention in the media is uh, the potential use of convalescent plasma from individuals that have recovered um, from COVID-19 infection and potentially have um, neutralizing antibodies. And so what um, our health system has done so far is sent out a survey to individuals that um, have recovered. Um, so far, we've received around 11,000 responses. Of those, 1,500 are potentially eligible to have their... Um, it's not, it just, that, that just the idea that New York City has 11,000 people that have already recovered from COVID um, is so, just mind-blowing, right? Yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll caveat that with it was a an, um, kind of national call, um, and people were encouraged to come from other states. But the majority of those, um, I think you're right, are, are probably from this area. Um, but yeah, just the numbers are just, just crazy. Um, every morning we get an update with a new number of patients, a new number of ICU patients, and I did not even know that we could develop that many ICU beds. Our lobby is an ICU. The back of our lobby is an ICU. Um, I'm heading into the service um, to cover our transplant primary and consult services over the weekend, so have a little bit more hands-on experience. Um, so kind of what I'm sharing is from what I'm reading, hearing, and um, kind of seeing, and also a development over the last week was a development of this um, hospital within the park that is already starting to see patients um, so um, everything is really changing day to day. We also have clinical trials for um, mesenchymal stem cells that are starting to get going, as well as um, one of the um, alternative IL-6 um, antagonists and um, some of the antivirals. So a lot of clinical trials happening. Um, we do have our treatment protocols that are similar to what's being done across the country. Um, but I'm sure this conversation would be very different um, even in a few days. 
So rewind. You guys are are your fellows still acting as nephrology fellows, or have they been pulled to general medicine? So thus far, um, they have not been pulled. Um, we are one of the um, specialty services um, that is still seeing the service that we are assigned to. Um, but which this, which specialties have been pulled? Um, so I don't know which have been pulled. I know that we pulmonary critical care and infectious disease have not been pulled. Right. So for, at our institution, cardiology has been pulled to general medicine and mm-hmm. nephrology, not yet. Mm-hmm. Mike, what about with you guys? Uh, there's been discussion of it, but uh, with fewer fellows, only two years and 10 fellows total, we're basically able to keep our nephrology fellows as uh, as nephrology fellows instead of being pulled to be gen med attendings. But uh, similar to what you guys are describing, others, other services have had their fellows pulled, um, at least planning to, for coverage of gen med. Swap, are you guys doing anything like that? Um, we have a plan for doing that, but nothing yet. Um, I suspect we'll be lower down compared to many other, even surgical branches, for example. But there are so many stories, even ophthalmologists. Uh, in, in, in all seriousness, it's not just glauco, uh, but in all seriousness, uh, there are ophthalmologists. There's a guy called Francis Deng. He's a radiology um, trainee who's, I think he's going to finish radiology. And, and he volunteered and he's doing intensive, uh, sorry, internal medicine. And he was saying, I'm enjoying this so much. Maybe I'll switch courses and do internal medicine. For a radiologist to that, say that was amazing. Um, obviously, he's a very bright radiologist. Matt, what's, what's going on at Duke in that regard? Well, we had a, a town hall meeting for all fellows and residents today. And um, they're still in planning stages here. We are probably two to three weeks behind New York and probably... Um, Detroit. Uh, so there's no specific plans, but apparently in the next week, we're going to sort of understand more about that. And, and Jenny, what are they doing at Northwestern? Yeah. So I think the cardiology fellows are you know, f- up first to bat in terms of being pulled. Um, and there's no word on nephrology per se, uh, but we do have a COVID specific service. Um, and at Northwestern, I'm I don't have wood to knock on, but um, the projected, the number of patients has not reached the projected number. So it's a little bit slower, which is good. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good. Maybe you guys are going to avoid uh, a, a terrible situation that I we're wonder, running through right can now. Can I go back to the convalescent serum and throw out a, a really nice Yeah, paper. I want to hear more. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about this, but uh, there's a great article in JCI published in, that, in the last day or two that sort of goes into the historical perspective of using this and several other, um, you know. It's like 1920s medicine again. Like it's really But not only that, but it's like used in Ebola. It's been been used in a lot of different scenarios. But if you want to read about the historical perspective, we will put that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. But it seems like one of those last resort options that... It might not be a last resort. It might be actually a first resort before you have therapy. I wouldn't look at it as a... Yeah, I mean, other than other before. than animal models, I think there's some studies in um, monkeys that um, our division chief was mentioning today. There, we don't really know if the antibody is actually going to be like how helpful it will be, um, if it really will be neutralizing, um, or how long it might even stick around. And same thing with people that have infection, though the reinfection rate is not reported to be that high. How long does this immunity last? Is it is it a few months? Is it a few years? I think a lot of kind of scary questions. Some of the Swablo, you were talking before that there was an article in JAMA that was looking at patients that were received uh, this convalescent serum. Yeah, so there's a, um, I'll pull it up. It's a five patient case series from China. 
um, and they reported uh, good outcomes. I think three patients were um, even discharged and a couple of them uh, did very well. Um, give me one second. I mean, there's a, uh, in that paper from JCI, it was like a retrospective study of 1,700 patients from uh, the Spanish flu. I mean, so they really used it a lot. Um, I mean, obviously it's not randomized, but they, you know, it seemed to, to you know, at least those patients weren't as bad as what they were, uh, would, would think would be otherwise. So, so I yeah, think so it's, that, I mean, it's, like, it's something you know, we I, should do, yeah. especially since we're not going to have any therapies anytime soon, it doesn't appear. So these were five patients from the um, uh, from Shenzhen, not from Wuhan. Uh, all of them had ARDS and they were on uh, ventilators. And uh, after getting the convalescent plasma, three of them were weaned off the ventilators and two of them are in stable condition um, at uh, 37 days though, length of stay. You know, and the length of stay was like 50 days for these patients. That's the other thing that is uh, crazy. But again, oh, these are that. these are five, you know, a case series of five patients. Uh, it's not a study. It was like they tried this. Uh, who knows if there were other patients they tried and they're not reporting. Well, and, and that the, the prolonged vent course is exactly what I was seeing in the last couple of weeks is these patients on the ventilator, like they're doing fine on the ventilator, but they're really not getting better. It is a very slow process, which is part of the reason that, you know, the ICU beds get filled up is because once they get intubated, they, you know, they stay intubated. And if it's they hard, do recover, hard. the mean time is like something around two weeks, right? To be on the ventilator? It was, I, that, that's right. I, I thought I saw that in one of the earlier studies. Yeah, that really that consumes a lot of uh, ICU space. One of the things we were talking about with a pulmonary colleague about this is that once they have ARDS, this looks just like a lot of different ARDSs. And so, um, you know, like whatever started the situation, the inflammation or whatever, if they get to the point where they have ARDS, it's going to be very challenging to have a therapy. Like like you said, like what will these neutralizing antibodies do? Like what point will it be helpful earlier in the course? Right. Clearing the, clearing the virus at that point may not be so super important. Exactly. And that, that's where it's like it, we, we have to be very cautious about like when we're going to deploy these new, new um, therapies. Um, so that they actually will, you know, have a possibility to show benefit. There was an article in Nature that looked at uh, time to developing uh, antibodies, and uh, it's actually pretty interesting. So, at fifty percent of people getting antibodies at seven days, and one hundred percent of people developing antibodies at two weeks, but they said that developing the antibodies didn't result in clearance of the virus from the pharynx. Right, it was like still shedding for at least yeah. a week after. Yeah. I also wonder if um, asymptomatic individuals develop the antibodies. I think I, I didn't really see any references, but I heard some conversation about it. And that, that is also another challenge that even if you were exposed, but there's no antibody, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're at higher risk for some sort of reinfection with symptoms later? Um, ideally, I think we would just test everyone's antibodies. But hmm. So one of the things that I noticed that I was shocked when I was seeing these patients is a lot of patients were being admitted with really advanced kidney disease, like on the day of admission, creatinines of 8, 11, 17, with you know, minimal uh, CKD before that, you know, maybe a baseline of one and a half or two, and all of a sudden they're in advanced kidney disease with hyperkalemia and they're aneuric. And you know, I, had, I started so many patients 
on dialysis on the day of admission. I'd never seen that before. You usually have a, a couple of days where you can warm up and see, and see if you can try, you know, rehydration or what have you. But this over and over again, I was seeing patients. And that was the other thing. They weren't coming in volume depleted. You know, they'd have a history where you'd think they'd be volume depleted. Oh, I've had some diarrhea. I've had some vomiting. Haven't eaten for a week. And you go in to examine them and they got edema and they got a high blood pressure. And you're like, well, I don't think you'd I don't think you need resuscitation. I really think you need dialysis. And so, you know, there's part of this disease is that there's a lot of acute kidney injury and some of it is on presentation. So, so and these patients weren't clinically dry. They weren't hypotensive. So it's hard to say, hey, this is, you know, multi-organ failure and shock causing necrosis. Yeah. On our website, on the AKI page, there's a little bit of pathology uh, that was posted, and it did show that there was a lot of macrophage infiltration in these kidneys. And um, on BioArchive today, uh, there was a release by Lang et al. looking at uh, the proteomics of peripheral blood mononuclear cells. So basically, these cells that, when they stick down to the blood vessels, turn and differentiate into macrophages. And there are some signature proteins that are being circulated that are considered virulence factors for SARS-CoV-2 that may actually activate these PBMCs to um, turn into macrophages and also uh, release a lot of uh, signaling for a cytokine storm. Is that still a controversial term, Matt? We're not gonna, we're not going <laughs> I think to... it has become more controversial since the podcast. Yeah, this is really blown up. Although most viewers do like the term quite a lot. It, it made it to the New York Times, right? They called it cytokine storm. Well, then we're pretty much, it's not going away anytime soon. Sorry, rheumatologists. Uh, so, so, Jenny, what is activating these macrophages? Uh, no, so like you have these circulating cells in your blood, like in your white cells, and when they get activated or inflamed, they can also come and stick down onto tissue and differentiate into macrophages. They also will recruit neutrophils and other immune cells to invade tissue. And we think it's the macrophages that are causing a lot. You think there's, the, there's some evidence that it's the macrophages that are causing a lot of this kidney damage? Uh, it looks like that on the initial pathology from that one preprint that we have on our page. Uh, I don't think that's been confirmed with other uh, published studies yet, but uh, it's definitely one of the cell types that seems to be infiltrating. And that and, is and concordant is it, with what's going on in the lungs. There's a lot of macrophage infiltration in the lungs, too. And do we have any other models of kidney disease we may be more familiar with that also look like that, or is this kind of standalone? Matt? <laughs> Well, you know, so, you know, it's interesting you're mentioning macrophages. So um, if you if you infuse, uh, sorry, uh, you guys have to mute your microphones right now, uh, angiotensin into a mouse, uh, you get a lot of macrophage infiltration as well. But the interesting thing about it is if you activate a macrophage through the angiotensin receptor, it's actually anti-inflammatory. This is a very big conundrum, which I can't really explain and understand. And it's uh, something that was noted in the, in the kidney biopsy specimens, but it might actually be playing a role in the lung as well. But I think what I've, I've been trying to wrap my brain around is this. You know, if you were to start a fire with a match, when the house is burning, you don't go try to find the match to put it out. And I think that's one thing that we're really struggling with. We're trying to find the match and put that out, but it's, um, it's, it's already burning. And so... Um, uh, you know, there's initial response that gets way out of control with the immune system. I think that's apparently clear here. If we can figure out like how to tamper that down, maybe we can get some secrets as to why this is occurring. And we know that 
the virus hijacks the brakes of the renin and angiotensin system. And so that's where a lot of attention is put into, like, maybe that's why it's being ramped up. So the other, sorry, the other thing that uh, I found curious is that same paper that Jenny mentioned, uh, there's a conversation between um, Anthony Chang and a couple of other pathologists. And so I think Tony has seen some microthrombi in one of that figures. Um, and there's a Twitter conversation where a couple of them, the pathologists are seeing and yeah, they're talking about microthrombi, which is, you know, if true, um, that's kind of interesting with the elevated D-dimers and all the clotting that people are talking about. Yeah, yeah. I know he also mentioned that uh, there appear to be possible racial differences because we're seeing a lot of differences in the incidence of AKI reported from different places, especially from China, where they're really reporting almost minimal AKI in some of the early experiences. And I, I uh, Tony and I were communicating also uh, via DM, and he thinks that there could be complement differences. Uh, and we've seen that in, in some other I know that that's what he would think, um, mm -hmm. and uh, but it, it could very well be true that there could be some differences there. Did he comment on any uh, complement deposition in these biopsies? No, so he's, he was commenting on what he could see posted on the light microscopy images. Um, you know, so he uh, there, there was some discussion about whether it's safe to do immunofluorescence even. So there are some pathologists who say, hey, is it, you know, it may not be safe, uh, but uh, some other thing that uh, whatever you use for fixing it probably kills the virus. So again, for them, and this very, is a big issue, right? For, I for thought I heard something right? about complement. I, I mean, there was some something about complement. I, I yeah, remember, it's but. deposition on the tubules, but very little in the glomeruli. Right when I hear the word complement, I'm like walking out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, ikiluzumab. That's, no, that's right. We, we have we've got tools to to adjust complement. If this ends up being a complement storm Joel, rather than a side effect, everyone take a deep breath here. We're not going to speculate. Uh, let's just get back to our business here. So, Joel, um, going back to what you said about the presentation, I, I'm I was a little surprised to hear that because that's different than uh, the experience we've had so far. Uh, we have not seen people come in quite that. Uh, bad off in terms of their AKI. We've seen more of it develop, more typical of an ARDS, multi-organ failure type syndrome. Do you think the differences could be in, in terms of uh, lateness of presentation? Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's curious whether it is this a social determinants of health issue where people are just presenting very late. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, um, I think this is really challenging. We look at these papers, we have them all listed on the NFJC site, and you see there's one paper, I think out of Wuhan, China, 30% uh, AKI. Um, but it's like, this is like all ICU and 60% of a high risk. And so, um, you know, it, it's, uh, we have to be very cautious to interpret anecdotal stories, uh, small case series, preprints, and to say, this is how it is. It's really, because I, I, I think every time I go onto Twitter, which is, I, I've had to, to go off of it yesterday, is like, you, you would think, what disease are we talking about here? Every time it's different. Yeah, I think the other thing, especially with these smaller hospitals, um, depending on what their kind of typical age demographic is, can be hit either very hard or in a different way. Um, I have a colleague um, in New Jersey where their mean patient age is probably, you know, mid-70s, 80s. They had one nursing home that got infected, and the whole hospital is basically just completely overrun because of that. And on top of that, just having an older population in general. So uh, maybe not so much for the larger academic centers, but I think for definitely smaller ones that may draw a particular population um, can really skew 
the presentation and what you're seeing? Slightly switching topics, but not completely. People have talked about the hemodialysis patients having a milder uh, course. So in, there's one Chinese paper also, uh, a preprint, which talks about uh, there were 230 patients and I think 32 or 27 of them got um, uh, COVID, but they all had a you know very mild course. Uh, and the six patients who died died because you know they were anxious about coming to dialysis and missed dialysis and hence they passed away it had nothing to do with covid they actually measured uh, inflammatory cytokine levels and they say hey these levels were lower but the average age of those patients is like 50 that doesn't resemble my hemodialysis unit right my patients are 70 um, mean age is 70 or higher and north americans typically you know we don't say no to dialysis everyone goes on and i wonder if places perhaps even like europe and i'm sure in asia uh, their criteria for who goes on dialysis is is slightly different, uh, and and we should you know interpret those uh, that, that data a little bit carefully. Right, and that's a that's a case fatality question also, and I think our dialysis patients get intense surveillance, and I think we're going to pick up a lot of those mild cases because everybody's getting a, their temperature checked three times a week when they're coming in and they're answering questions. We're doing pretty intensive screening uh, for all of our dialysis patients. Have you guys implemented strategies to segregate your dialysis patients yet? So for our inpatients, we have one of our shifts, which is uh, the last shift of the day is a COVID shift, essentially. Um, and then st- if the patients are too sick, then we are obviously still doing those um, not in our unit um, off-center in their isolated rooms. Um, and our new policy now is N95s for any patient. Um, so we're all wearing that all the time, um, but particularly if for some reason you're having to go to the dialysis unit during that time. Yeah, our policies, we don't we don't move COVID patients. We don't transport them through the hospital so that they have to all be done as a uh, bedside. Right. But that, doesn't that require one-to-one nursing? Yeah, well, so, is, so we, and, we were doing we're that. we're crushing our nurses. Yeah, That's we, exactly right. We're, we're, we're crushing the nurses. It's really, it's really problematic. We are cutting all of our treatments, though, which I'm sure everyone else is doing as well. Yeah. Why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about that? How are we kind of extending? How, what, what, what's your, what, how are you extending the use of your inpatient dialysis resources? So we have already, despite not having you know reached a, a need with the volume of COVID patients, we have already cut down to three hours for all the patients. I mean, we are typically, we wear four hours, three times a week. So uh, we went through a blitz last week and identified who could not be three hours. And uh, we had to sort of, you know, say, hey, this patient should not be three hours. Everyone else went to three hours. So that's the first thing we have done, but we have a plan to, you know, the next step would be uh, to do two times a week. Um, The reason two times a week did not happen uh, yet is because in terms of scheduling, it's apparently a nightmare. Um, unless unless all patients go to two times a week, then you can do Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Friday, Wednesday, Saturday. Otherwise, if some patients are two times a week and some are three times a week, it becomes uh, almost impossible. Yeah, we're doing we're doing two and a half hour treatments for the. This is the inpatient dialysis. Anybody else making these kinds of adjustments? We've also cut down to three hours for the most part to get by. I heard on the ASN podcast earlier that they actually also opened up their dialysis unit to staffing their inpatient on Sundays to try to make it like a, not quite like a regular day, but to increase. And um, that's not something we've done yet. And trying to not burn out our nurses even more by adding a day to the week that they normally work. But um, I think pretty soon it's going to be unrealistic to have our one on-call nurse with one backup, where we're going to need to staff more than that. Right. One question we're, we're sort of talking about, and maybe I hear the opinions of you guys have gone through this, of what about cross-training other nurses to do dialysis and technicians? 
We have not no. had to do that yet. Um, luckily, we have had enough nurses um, and nurses that have had to go out because of symptoms or testing positive have been staggered. But I imagine that we'll have to think about that if we lose the bulk of our staff. Yeah, on the on the webinar that just finished, Anita Vijayan, uh, she talked about that in the ICU, saying that you probably will end up having, uh, you know, I don't think she mentioned ophthalmology, but surgical nurses, perhaps working in the ICU. And she said, you need not have them, you know, understand everything about CRRT, uh, but it may be useful to have a crash course on, you know, troubleshooting and stuff like that. The other thing on the webinar that was interesting uh, was that, I forget the name now, she's from Montefiore, from New York. Um, She mentioned that uh, for PUI patients, so suspected COVID, but not confirmed COVID, where if you put them on a COVID shift and N95 and PPE usage and you're kind of stuck with the amount of N95 masks and PPE uh, stuff that you have, what you could do is uh, you could push the dialysis by 24 hours, try to get the test done. And if the test is uh, negative, uh, then that saves you from the PPE usage, right? So if you can say give someone um, a, a potassium binding resin, or uh, give them Lasix and and push dialysis by 24 hours and confirm the COVID status of the patient, that may be a huge life uh, saver in terms of PPE uh, if if that's a scarce resource. How fast is the uh, turnaround for everybody on on COVID testing now? We have it in-house now, and so we can get it back, I believe, um, as soon as six hours. Yeah, I think it's similar for us as well. Yes, we have in-house as of... uh, four or five days ago, but I think it's still many hours. But we have a backlog of many hundreds or maybe thousands of tests. We are still sending them to the state. Uh, Capability of the state to do them is apparently ramping up pretty quickly, and we're getting pretty good turnaround. Yeah, it was on service, and we were like uh, five to seven days, and then we got the in-house test, and it was four or five-hour turnaround, and it was just like night or day. It was like all these rule-outs were just coming back. But we're also testing several times in case there are some false negatives. How are you guys handling false negatives? So right now we are pretending they're negative. And, and uh, from everything I've heard, we should not be doing that, right? So uh, Francesco Ianizula right. uh, in his webinar and, and otherwise also has said that in Italy, it was a clinical diagnosis because the rates of false negative were so high. Um, so we are swabbing them twice uh, if they're negative, but I, I'm quite worried that uh, that negative test is not very useful. I think one of the papers, was it in Nature or Na- the same paper that uh, Joel was citing, is that the uh, it depends on when you get it, right? Not uh, If you get it too early in the course or a little bit later, then your nasopharyngeal swab can be negative. Just because you don't have enough uh, uh, material. Uh, if you get your pipe. capacity up high enough, would it not be an idea to just do the whole hospital like MRSA swabs? Right. I mean, I know you're going to miss some, but at least you're going to catch a few. Mm-hmm. And then at least you can start fresh. And you see so many positives from people that have been, been in the hospital for several days. I mean, we're treating our whole hospital like every single person that is a patient or works there has COVID infection right now. Um, that is kind of the approach that we're using. It seems like one, that's a great be- approach for all the hospitals to, to do. Um, yeah, one, because of the false negatives, and two, um, for all the asymptomatic people that are not going to get tested. Um, and even some of the symptomatics, it's it's not that easy to, to get everyone tested, as we all know. 
So once it breaks out, I mean, it's, it's just going to run rampant. I mean, that's where you have to be very cautious and do everything that you need to do to keep yourself from being exposed and your patients. Yeah, and even, you know, even rounding. Um, our uh, transplant teams were, were rounding via Zoom. We're not gathering as a group. Um, if patients need to be seen, we're seeing them separately. Um, so it's not just patient to healthcare worker. It's at, you know, a colleague to colleague level right now as well. Right. And that's the thing, right? Like if you, you can't wait to do many of these things. And, and I think our approach is still let's wait and see what happens. Uh, you know, it goes from two cases last week to 45 cases this week to 2000 cases next week. Right. Suddenly it's done. Right. Uh, it, it's everywhere. Uh, yeah. I mean, so it's, you know, Andrew Cuomo saying, you know, we are going to be everybody else soon. So I think we are the, you know, we've just we kind of waited and watched. And this is what we're the situation that we're in right now. I was on a conference call with uh, a couple of people from China uh, this past weekend that were on the front lines, a nephrologist and a critical care uh, physician from uh, Beijing that were part of the response to go to Wuhan. And they were telling us that uh, per their numbers, there were 40,000 healthcare professionals that went to Wuhan from different parts of China. And basically zero got infected uh, with COVID which is almost too fantastical to believe. Um, but the procedures that they described in terms of, you know, really practicing their donning, doffing, um, using N95s, just like you guys are describing, for, but for every procedure and really making concerted efforts to separate the PUIs, having fever clinics, having dedicated COVID hospitals. You know, we have not done anything like that in this country. You know, we're, we're all still COVID ward, maybe a COVID shift, uh, on dialysis and things like that, we're not really um, segregating. So uh, I'm pretty worried after listening to them, it was in, at first encouraging, but then realizing that we're not doing things to the extent that they did to get things under control. Um, that's that's part of um, what's been very concerning to me. And, and if you see the uh, curves, right, people are saying, all the news in the last 24 hours is you can't trust the numbers from China. But even if, whether you trust the numbers or not, the, the flattening of the curve that they got was with all those measures. U.S. has zipped right past China uh, in, in all those numbers. And, and I, it doesn't seem to show any sign of slowing down. And we have, you know, neither in Canada or U.S. or anywhere else have we done anything like what the Chinese government did. I don't, you know, my kids have been home from school now three weeks, right? This feels like we've pretty much shut down this city and this state you'd think to see you'd see some kind of uh uh, dividends from that yeah but the the in the hospital right we aren't segregating you know our hospitals are there's going to be a lot of nosocomial transmission within the hospital i'm afraid right but that's not what's filling the hospital the hospital's not filling with nosocomial right right covid right they're coming in from the outside they will in a few weeks yeah they they will exactly but but even outside like is it are people shopping the same way as they should, uh, as they did in China, right? There were these police walking around, uh, uh, making yeah, I sure think no one the, gets the out. The streets are, are more, have more cars in it than I would anticipate here. Mm-hmm. And we have a stay order in the state now for a week. And I'm just wondering, like, where where are all these people going when I'm going into work? Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. No, I was just going to say, um, I think um, finally in the last week or two, 
We've started to see the streets in New York City thin out a little bit. But before, <laughs> even when the social distancing was being advised, people were just not taking it seriously here. Um, in the parks, people congregating. Um, and maybe just in the last week in grocery stores, have they really started to um, implement and enforce people being six feet away? Um, I went to the grocery store over the weekend, and they have stickers on the ground that are six feet apart. And you can basically, you have to stand on one of those to pay or whatever you're doing. So you're kind of like a frog like jumping from pad to pad. Um, but again, it, it just started this week. And I think we're just just behind and um, trying to play catch up. And it's just hard to watch. And the whole, people, the whole of Asia wearing, wearing masks, right? Uh, that is frowned upon. We are not even allowed to wear masks. Uh, like you say, the clipboard are uh, walking around um, telling you not to wear a mask in the hospital. In Asia, they have been wearing a mask. Everyone. The whole population has been wearing a mask now for more than a month. Yeah, it went from like yeah, they were shaming. Yeah, Western started that too. And now in the hospital, it's like you must wear a mask, and it's like it's uh, it's really things are really changing quickly. But I think that's where I don't know. It's like when you watch these, you know, you see what's happening in other states, other countries, and you want you want to try to do the right thing. And when you're rounding, you're you're like sort of thinking like, am I doing enough to protect myself and others? Yeah, and going back to Joel's point about the three weeks is like, I think three weeks ago when it started here, people were very cautious, but it's wearing off, right? People, oh, you know, we haven't seen so many cases and maybe this is overblown and, and the flu brothers are out there. And uh, my wife went, uh, drove uh, uh, today and she didn't enter the grocery store because the parking lot was packed and she said, okay, I dare not go inside. She just came back. Uh, so I suspect the, you know, the novelty of... Uh, uh, of staying at home and social distancing is wearing off as people are thinking, hey, we are not Italy and we are not New York. Uh, and that's my fear is that uh, people get, will get complacent and, and we'll see this uh, story playing out. Yeah, people don't feel complacent here in Detroit. I mean, people are pretty worried. Mm -hmm. uh, when you go to the grocery store, you see a lot of people wearing masks. Yeah, so, but Detroit is a little bit... I'm, I'm concerned, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, so places right. which are not hit are going to get hit eventually is, is my concern. Did we talk about clotting of these filters? Yeah, so it's been talked about, uh, I think it came uh, on Twitter initially that uh, people mentioned that clotting, uh, they noticed clotting of the filters. And the initial thought was that this is just the uh, hyperinflammation. Uh, it's just something that accompanies the inflama inflammation that you see. And it has been reported before with CRRT, right? Uh, so just use more of heparin uh, is what we have been talking about. Uh, I don't think on the FJC page we recommended starting a regional citrate you know, anticoagulation because it's very complicated. If you have been doing that, go ahead and do that, but otherwise don't start it. Yeah, at, uh, our, at our center, we actually don't use um, citrate or heparin um, as our standard. Um, so we have now started to do that. Um, so even that is... New for us, but um, heparin is obviously a little bit easier than the, the citrate. Um, and same thing, we're now um, doing heparin locks for um, dialysis catheters and heparin during um, just regular dialysis treatments as well. Yeah, and I think that's important. We're seeing clotting just during conventional dialysis too. And, and we're seeing access that, you know, between treatments, our clotting between treatments. It really is something that uh, we're not familiar with. It's really, it does feel very different. Now, Mike, aren't you guys all citrate there in Michigan? We are. And uh, we've, we've had about 15 patients on, uh, with COVID-19 who are, uh, have been treated with CRT now. And we do citrate on pretty much everybody. And uh, I've been pleasantly surprised. I expected a lot of the inflammatory response, which we sometimes see even with our citrate protocol. 
But in pretty much all of our patients, we have not seen a lot of premature clotting. And I think that, again, during today's uh, ASN uh, webinar earlier, people reported clotting without anticoagulation, but when using either uh, heparin or citrate, it seems to be uh, much more tolerable. And we've extended our filter lives out to 96 hours, um, as needed four days. Uh, that's one of the off-label things. And that's, again, to try to limit uh, unnecessary changes. And quite frankly, we anticipate that sometime in the next two to three weeks, we may have a disposables issue um, in terms of supplies. So we're trying to do whatever we can to preserve uh, our supplies now. Are any of you trying um, higher therapy flow rates um, and then doing, you know, maybe 10 hours so that you can use that machine for another patient? That's part of- We started that today. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of our uh, next phase. We have 20 CRT machines, and when we exceed 20, then we will move to shift therapy or, or PERT um, and, and start doing that with some patients. And we'll try to triage it. There's some patients that are uh, less... Uh, a little bit less sick or maybe have less uh, obligate ins that we need to manage with CRT that we could uh, tolerate shift therapy or even every other day. I was talking to um, Anita Vijayan after the webinar, and that's their standard at uh, WashU is to do uh, PERT. And she does that in most patients four to five times a week of uh, between eight to 10 hours of therapy. And that's plenty even in, in her very uh, sick patients. So that's really encouraging to us because it means we can extend our 20 CRT machines to meet the needs of, you know, potentially 80 patients at once, 80 critically ill patients. Sorry, what is a PERT? PERT was my elementary oh, school shampoo. Yeah. PERT <laughs> is a P-I-R-T. Prolonged, prolonged, prolonged intermittent. intermittent. Yeah. Like CRRT, prolonged intermittent, yeah. like SLED or a hybrid oh, therapy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. So what's the difference in PERT and SLED? Just different name, it, same it, thing? Yeah, just a name. So so SLED... No, but isn't, does, SLED uses a conventional dialysis machine yeah. and the PERT uses the CRRT So it's basically uh, SLED for CRRT and you call and it PERT. And PERT doesn't necessarily have to use dialysate, right? If you're doing CVVH. Yeah, or AVVH, right. like Roger likes to call it. M-P-G-L-N-P-R-I-T-L-E-D. SLED. Good. What, rewind, just one, one last thing about this clotting. Do we think this increase, increased clotting tells us anything about the disease? Is this a clue that we're going to be, when we're all done, we're like, ah, we should have known the clotting yeah. was the clue. So so that's the thing, right? So there was a there was an interesting thread from the MedCalc guys. I think MedCalc has put a bunch of resources on their app from uh, from Italy. They call it the Brescia COVID protocols or something. And they are quite suspicious that um, uh, there is something with this uh, thrombosis going on. Um, they, they are speculating that the silent hypoxia, uh, maybe pulmonary embolism, perhaps microemboli happening, and, and the elevated D-dimers, which seem to be such a huge prognostic marker. Um, so I just wonder if, you know, the, you see thrombi in the kidney, you see pulmonary embolism perhaps uh, and they've seen the market improvement with tocilizumab or, and that and they often used uh, systemic anticoagulation as well but again this is like matt has been talking about right this is all the uh, anecdotal evidence in my we get a little disclaimer before he starts talking every time yeah joel again <laughs> but that's that's all you know it's it's again you're, you're right this could be a clue right is what i'm trying to say this this could be a real clue 
<laughs> Matt, tell us about mice. No, I, I mean that. I, I oh, thank God! Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it was. <laughs> oh, okay. QPD. Who's doing a QPD? Um, yeah. So. Um, I don't have personal experience, um, but we did have a pretty um, lengthy discussion and um, teaching session for our faculty. And so the idea is that as we approach capacity for hemodialysis, um, we will need to think about other options. And so the in the ideal situation, we would identify this patient um, that has acute kidney injury, who has no um, contraindications, um, get a catheter placed within 24 hours, and we have a surgical team that is um, on board for this. And then 48 hours after catheter placement, we would start PD using um, the um, the cycler. Um, and so we have a pretty um, robust PD team in place of nurses and um, PD specialized physicians. Um, so we're kind of ready to go. Um, I think maybe the first patient may have been today or is going to start soon. Um, but a lot of documentation passed out to all of us that are not maybe as familiar with, with PD. Um, and so hoping to offload our hemodialysis load, um, with patients that may be appropriate candidates for this. Yeah, the, the concerns with PD, uh, so it was also mentioned on the webinar and we have a, a section on the NFJC website as well. Uh, some of the concerns are like, how do you do PD in a prone uh, patient? Um, oh God! Right, uh, and the whole thing about if you yeah, are my my the... guide does not say anything. I don't about think that. you would pick a patient like that to use PD. <laughs> well, right, right. No, uh, that's true. You try not to pick a patient like that. But apparently, there's a case report uh, that um, uh, Dan Weiner mentioned that I'll I'll add. Um, the the other thing is the um, you have a second port in their back. Can <laughs> <laughs> we get that disclaimer again, please? <laughs> then um, there's the concern about you're filling up the uh, belly with fluid, right? Uh, and that's going to press the diaphragm uh, potentially a little bit up. Uh, all that glucose, uh, Rod B talked about, all that glucose is getting metabolized into carbon dioxide. Um, and again, acute PD, you put on a PD catheter. Normally, you know, we, you wait for six weeks for it to heal. Uh, if you're going to use it right away, you better make sure you're using smaller volumes, uh, which is a concern than if you want to dry them out. Uh, if your volume is an issue, so uh, it, it's it, it's uh, you know it's not easy, Mike. But there's there is data on using a QPD and AKI, right? Yeah, not really from this country, uh, except but in, in Brazil, pediatrics. Doing it, yeah, right? in, in Brazil, mm-hmm. I think it's um, standard of care, and um, <laughs> uh, you know there was uh, some papers from other low resource countries uh, going way back. There's a New England Journal paper out of Vietnam a number of years ago, but that was that was critical because of uh, how well the even the HD was done and everything like that. So, but I think the, the best data is probably uh, for comparison from uh, Brazil, where they're able to do it with uh, uh, equ- fairly equivalent outcomes to HD. Um, I was gonna ask Samira, are you, are you guys planning on using this in your critically ill patients too, or, or more in place of IHD? I think if the critical care patient um, f- um, looks like they could be an appropriate candidate for catheter placement, I think the idea would be to try it there too. Um, again, this is completely new for us, uh, so I think it'll really be case-by-case basis. Yeah, I, I just, um, I don't have a, any experience with acute PD either, um, but you know, obviously, in terms of fluid management, you know, we're used to um, the CRT machine being able to control things very tightly on uh, in the critically ill patients. 
And then the solute control, you know, with uh, some of our very catabolic patients and everything, or, or those getting um, heavy feeds and things like that. So I mean, I, I think the other uh, issue is that right now, so much of our hospital is turning into a critically ill area. Um, even our traditional services, consult, ESRD, ICU, we're, we're going to rename them to regional areas because we just have IC level patients everywhere. Um, so I think that's also going to be a challenge. We're about nine days from that, I think, according to our projections. Uh, are there any important publications that have come out in the last couple of weeks? What are the ones that people should be reading? So uh, I, I would rather put in a caution, uh, cautionary note here. For example, um, the, there's a MedArchive paper that we uh, saw which talked about about 700 patients and you know a bunch of them got um, uh, AKI. And then it seems that uh, there was a paper published in KI, right? The one uh, which talked about AKI by Cheng. Uh, yeah. So I realized some of the numbers seem to be very similar. And I went digging and it's from the same hospital. A bunch of the authors are the same, but they don't mention that, you know, this was published on a preprint. It's fine. You know, you can go ahead and do this, but a preprint is a preprint, right? Uh, so you should mention that this was published in a preprint. And then it turns out that uh, there's another paper in BMJ which talks about 113 deaths and uh, the 113 clicked something. So if you go back to the Kidney International, they had 113 deaths. So it's the same, to me, it's the same data set. Data set. The same maybe. hospital. They talk about different things. They're slicing and dicing it, but you know, it, I, I was going to count it twice uh, for the NFJC. Uh, but the NFJC site is great because I think that's what the group of people do. They look at these, they distill it out, they call these things out. And I think that's important right now. And right now that's where everyone's wanting to have a place where this is all laid out so they don't have to discover it on their own. So now did the NEJM totally uh, uh, copy your site for that review article on the ACE2? <laughs> hey, I'm not going to go into that, but I'm suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I haven't read the article yet. Is there anything interesting in that in that review? It, uh, the CJ's a novel. Oh, no, the KI, no, the NEJ. I haven't read it either. Okay. I mean, why would I? <laughs> Something in there. I, I assumed you reviewed it. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. I just want to second what you guys have said about the um, NFJC sites from somebody that's not involved in it. Uh, I've, I've found it to be super helpful, and uh, I've shared that link with my faculty um, as, as a resource. Uh, you know, normally I like to send out the original articles and things like that, but quite frankly, things are coming out so quickly. So I, I think it's a huge service to the community as a whole to be able to tap into that, to go to a place quickly and get a, a thoughtful and reasonable um, assessment of the literature. So really, really appreciate that. I will say, though, it's been a little overwhelming. And when it first was started, I think we were we were all sort of coming together and, and it was exciting. We had a lot of energy, but actually the number of papers is just escalating like even more than we would even imagine. And yeah, it's hard to like, that's right. like you want to take a day off and people are DMing you and, and bringing up new papers and you're like, you know, I need to take a day off. Uh, it's, it's, so it's what, what, what this really is, is we're asking for help. So if this is, if you've <laughs> used the, the net, no, I'm serious. If you've oh, used right. the NFJC site and you like it, and you want to help with one of those pages, whether it's a transplant or pediatrics or 
chemodialysis or what have you, uh, get in contact with us because we would love we would love to have some fresh fresh energy there, and uh, it's going to become a bigger and bigger job going forward uh, to stay on top of the literature. And these things are only useful if they stay on top, right? If we start falling behind and we're a week behind or two weeks behind, the the whole project really falls apart. I mean, I was going to say, you know, just as challenging and upsetting and traumatic as these times have been, um, the the teamwork kind of on all fronts has been really helping all of us get through this. I'm at institutional level, at a New York City level, social media level, and kind of, I think, exemplified by the NFJC materials. I think we need to keep that going to make it through this to the end. Excellent. Should we stop? Uh, should we give a little uh, something that has been up- uplifting to each of us as well? Like Samir yeah. just did? Go ahead. No, um, I, I was going to pull up this uh, this quote that was in our institutional email today that I thought was really um, inspirational. It is the greatest of all mistakes to do nothing because you can only do little, do what you can. Um, and I think that's really important to remember that whatever you do is helpful. Um, no act is too small. Everything is significant and counts. Uh, for me, um, we put a lot of effort into Neff Madness, and obviously it sort of came out at the worst time, a uh, very challenging time. We had to make a lot of difficult decisions about what to do with something we've been working on for a year. Um, but it's been really refreshing to see the virtual um, Neff Madness parties on Zoom and to see, I think there was one in the Philippines yesterday. I think Nebraska had a really nice, nice one. I see people like actually doing it for medical students and residents. And so uh, that's been, you know, it's like, it is very important that not everything needs to be about COVID. And so I, I think sometimes you want to see a refreshing discussion about something that was not. And so seeing Neff Madness virtual parties have been really good for me. So Apno, you got anything uplifting? I don't know uh, which is uplifting. Um, I'm just been having, uh, for us, it's been like waiting for waiting for the hammer to drop, right? Waiting for the other yeah. two to drop. I'm just a waiting game and uh, um, uh, I'm going sort of insane. Uh, so trying to keep this blog uh, updated and, and reading up and, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hose. That's sort of keeping me a little bit sane. It's, I don't think it's uplifting. It's just like, that's how I'm uh, coping. Jenny, what do you got? Some of the female faculty at Northwestern ended up starting an email chain that involves basically a, a lot of people in academics. And it um, requires you to copy and paste an inspirational quote or song. And you kind of forward it on to the or you forward it to someone who's listed on the email. And so it just keeps going. It's like some sort of chain. And so I've been getting um, a lot of random poems in my inbox. And it's, they're all supposed to be uplifting and uh, inspirational. Just to, And it's kind of like a little Easter egg or a little nugget to um, just kind of keep everyone sane and inspired and know that everyone's in this together. Michael, you got anything? Yeah, um, you know, in my role as the clinical chief over at Michigan, um, I've been responsible for putting together the schedule of, of who's going to be on the front lines, who has to do extra service and everything. Um, and and that's kind of weighed on me heavily because 
you know, I'm literally putting my friends and colleagues in harm's way, myself as well, obviously. But it's a it's a fairly awesome responsibility. But, you know, uniformly, when I've shared with people what I'm asking them to do, I mean, the overwhelming response has been, what else can I do? And it's just an awesome feeling to work with a group like that. And it's not just within our walls. We're seeing it elsewhere. Our our medical students who are off have put together an organization dedicated just to supporting us as much as possible. My friends and colleagues from around the country are are reaching out as they see that Michigan is about to be hit hard, is already being hit hard. And so there's really a sense of uh, community. We've always felt that in nephrology, to be honest, and this is part of that, but uh, even more now in in these times. So that's been really great. So uh, at our hospital, we're seeing a lot of the community come out in support. And uh, today, uh, one of the uh, fruit distributors dropped off hundreds of pounds of strawberries in little dishes. And so uh, every all the doctors and nurses and people working there got uh, little dishes of like six strawberries. It was really good. And they're great strawberries. It is strawberry picking season right now. Back to what Michael said, I think like, the camaraderie of the nephrology community I've always felt was very strong. And uh, I think while we are, are waiting for the surge here, it's been a struggle knowing what you can do during this time to help. And I think that's uh, something we're all struggling with because the clinics are slow, the services are actually slow, and we're just sort of like waiting. Uh, and it's beautiful outside too, um, and the weather's great, it's spring, and but we know uh, we see our colleagues struggling and in, in ev- everywhere else, and, and it's a very stressful time. But the community of nephrology and Nef Twitter has been amazing. Hey, excellent. Hey, thanks for joining me tonight. We're doing a real traditional NefJC next week. I'm not sure when this will come out, but we're going to be talking about um, tacrolimus for minimal change disease, kind of something completely different. So that should be interesting. Uh, but I think we'll keep doing these COVID talks because we're the story is changing pretty quickly in the the situation's evolving, keeping everybody up to date. Hey, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.